Welcome to show number four of Film Matters, where we examine films in light of faith. I'm Jason Weedle. On today's show, we discuss the 2014 film Ex Machina. Michael Harden is my guest today, and we delve into some philosophy, some theology, and some of the themes behind Ex Machina. Let's get into it. Welcome, Michael. Uh, thank you, Jason. Nice to be here. This movie is one that examines a lot of a lot of topics, and as I was watching it, um, I, I think it raises more questions for me than it does enlighten me in areas. Okay. So let's talk about that, but you know, it, it talks a lot about what is consciousness and identity and humanity and. And uh, I know you you also have some thoughts about kind of um, society and violence and some of those things, right? I, I thought it was a remarkably intelligent film. Yeah, yeah. Just from the kind of technical end, it's it's visually striking. I think all the way through, um, the film really only has three characters really we we see a couple other actors in very minor places throughout the movie but mostly it takes place in one setting as one of the characters Caleb interacts with Ava who is the the robot basically um which has been created by Nathan who's a, a character who is pretty much like the uh the creator of, of Google in this world. Which is actually he's, he's, a, he's ext- obviously extraordinarily wealthy if they can fly a helicopter for two and a half hours and that's over his property. How long until we get to his estate? <laughs> We've been flying over his estate for the past two hours. Yes. The, the contrasts in the film I thought were pretty amazing. Um, the the Most of the house... The kind of house laboratory that he has is very stark, and yes, um, but yet you see out these windows into this lush, amazing landscape that he lives in. The yes, of. yeah, yes, that's correct. Well, what were your what were your kind of basic impressions, Michael? Well, it was a very smartly directed film and well acted. Um, I would say there were four major characters, and you would I would want to include the um, I don't know what to call her Jack of all trades kind of person Kyoko, sure, because she plays such a significant role in the end. And there are several places in the film where I think she she functions as a mimetic double of Ava, um, and in particular Caleb is fooled by her. He thinks she's human. For the longest time. Right, right. So, so, um, but for me overall, the big question this film addressed was that it was about origins. It's, it's about the origins, not just of consciousness, but of human consciousness, which is always interdividual. Hmm. Eva comes into consciousness in relation to both Nathan and Caleb and then Kyoko. So I, I thought this was an interesting take on the whole thing. And, of, of course, if we're going to – spoiler alerts, right? We can do oh, spoiler sure. alerts. Yeah, you know? we, we, will, we will talk about it all. You know, at the end when, um, when Ava effectively uh, kills Nathan and Caleb, 
uh, I was stunned that this, that consciousness pr- produced this violent being that, so I was asking the question, well, where's the mimetic rivalry? Where, what's the object of desire? Who has what here? Who, who wants what? And then I started asking questions about Nathan, you know, his wealth, but he's also an alcoholic, uh, easily depressed, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a Caleb, um, uh, young upstart really, you know, ha- has in his own mind, he's got the world almost by the tail if somebody would pay attention to him, yeah. you know, um, uh, still looking for that one thing. So I was fascinated by the dynamics that way in the movie. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about uh, kind of the origins thing, it's it's notable that Ava's name is almost Eve. That's, sure that's, that's exactly right. I'm sure that's intentional. <laughs> yes. Well, and how odd is it that the other two names, Caleb and Nathan, both do come from the Jewish scriptures? Yeah. You know, um, which was, you know, again, very interesting, eh? Yeah, I was just uh, reading someone else's review who was actually noting that, noting that Caleb was a spy who went to to spy out the land, and this writer thought that might be significant, but they didn't really know how Nathan fit in there. Yeah, you can't fit Nathan into that particular uh, model. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so go ahead, you first. So, well, well kind of um, – Kind of to, to lay out the story, there's actually not a lot that happens as far as as the plot. We see this unfolding throughout the film of the examination that Caleb does with Ava to, and he's basically conducting a Turing test to find out if she can appear as a human being. So... Do you know what the Turing test is? Yeah. I know what the Turing test is. It's when a human interacts with a computer. And if the human doesn't know they're interacting with a computer, the test is passed. And what does the pass tell us? That the computer has artificial intelligence. Are you building an AI? I've already built one. And over the next few days, you're going to be the human component in the Turing test. And so there's a series of interviews. I, I thought it was interesting that we see ti- we see a title on the screen for each one. Um, yes. Session one, two, three, and we get up to seven. Yes. And I expect that that's intentional as well. That kind of a kind of a seven days kind of thing. Well, um, it could also be that we're seeing it through Nathan's lens because, remember, he's recording these. Right. And so he may have put the titles on there in his com- in his computer. Until we get to the end. I think the I yeah. think number seven is – now oh, I don't that, remember that, where, where – if it falls after he's dead or not. <laughs> okay, okay. That could it, be. It may, but I can't – I don't quite remember. Yeah, yeah. It's right in the, in the middle there. Okay. So um, we have the – the interaction mostly between between Caleb and Ava, we see Caleb actually developing feelings for Ava. 
We get the impression that Ava is developing some feelings for him. Um, and then we find out at the end that really Ava's been manipulating everyone so that she can escape and effectively kills her creator and her interviewer at the very end. So what are the themes here? What are the, what are the ideas? I mean, you've, you've mentioned some things. Can you kind of unpack that for us a little more and explain, explain sure, those I, big sure. ideas? Well, the, the movie, um, Ex Machina, obviously anybody that does theology is going to think of the term, uh, uh, Deus Ex Machina. Right. You know, and so again, from a, a mimetic theoretical perspective informed by the work of Rene Girard, all of a sudden, for me, as I watch the film, I see all kinds of mimetic rivalries, objects of desire. I certainly see how these rivalrous relationships turn violent. There's a, there is like a primordial founding murder here, um, just as you would uh, find in mimetic theory, um, and that's tied to human consciousness or or consciousness, just consciousness in general, because um, Eva, whatever she is, is conscious. Right. So I th- I thought all of these particular telltale signs uh, were an excellent lens by which to read uh, or to understand the film, and that's how I did it. So can you explain what is biomedic rivalry? Yeah, mimetic relationships are relationships where one um, <clears throat> person um, desires the desire of the other. Uh, essentially desire, the human is the only species that once its needs are satisfied doesn't know what it wants. And so we, we non-consciously imitate each other's desires. Um, in the film, you know, you have um, Caleb looking at his object of desire is to be noticed. That's what, that's what he wants. Mm. Eva's object of desire is also to be noticed. And I think that there's... Um, in the beginning of the film, when she's querying Caleb in the uh, initial interviews, and she wants to know if he likes her, she's also aware that Nathan has Kyoko out in the halls doing things. That, you know, I mean, Kyoko's free, right? But she's not. You know, so there's there's a desire. There's a desire to be free. It's interesting there's, too that. The the questions that go back and forth between them, they're basing their questions of each other on the questions that have already proceeded. There is this, uh, you know, I, I see that where you're talking about that mimetic rivalry or just that mimetic desire. Um, I see that just in the conversations, um, mm-hmm. the way they 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 are wanting at least to know about each other in ways that are based on what the other person has already said. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> so there was, there was a lot of rhetorical doubling that occurs in, in those dialogues, which is again, it's a, just a sign of, uh, when you find doubling in a, in a text or in a, in this case, in a film, um, you're almost always dealing with mimetic relationships. Yeah, it's very interesting. Yes. So explain explain founding murder. What, what are you talking about there? Well, you know, Freud. Um, when you go back to to Sigmund Freud, and he discusses this uh, the founding murder myths of of culture, and for him, it's the uh, son's desire for the mother, the killing of the father, the Oedipal complex. 
And of course, you know the story from uh, the Greek myths about Oedipus. So, founding murder myths, when the anthropologists come along, begin they begin to see them in, in basically all cultures. And we have, of course, uh, the a good Greco-Rome, a Greek founding murder myth is uh, the Oedipus story. Uh, the in Rome, you would have the story of the founding of uh, the city of Rome, the conflict between Romulus and Remus in the writer Livy. Um, in the Enuma Elish, you have the conflict between the gods and the slaying or the murder of Tiamat the dragon. And in the Bible, you have the founding murder myth. It's the story of Cain and Abel. In other words, civilization is built on blood. All civilization arises from blood and or sacrifice. And Girard has been able to demonstrate how it's out of ritual human sacrifice that the human species learned to contain its mimetic rivalry by displacing it from time to time on random or innocent victims. And so after a while, this becomes ritualized. The community learns all manner of, of uh, behavioral systems that it didn't have before related to cooperation and taboos and these sorts of things. And then eventually this leads to uh, the relationship between religion, which is this sacrificial mechanism that operates from time to time to placate the gods and human culture. So that's kind of my mimetic theory in a nutshell. So where does consciousness fit into to that idea? Well, yeah, when, um, you know, when Girard or, or any mimetic theorist uh, is discussing origins, and they're always, always going to do this um, in terms of evolutionary uh, theory. Um, so they talk about the rise of consciousness, particularly in terms of the development of the rise of civilization. So right now, one of the things that is really of big interest to mimetic theorists is um, – the redating of uh, some of the uh, ruins there at Kato Hoyuk uh, in Turkey uh, to as early as 10,000 BCE rather than 8,000 uh, as previously uh, suggested, which was already millennia prior to the great civilizations, where we have um, what appear to be uh, sacred spaces or religious spaces. And um, I don't know yet that there is any evidence of sacrifice or, or anything like that. But uh, the fact that uh, already in our homo sapien sapien development is we are still semi-nomadic. We are starting to become a domestic, uh, but we're still fairly nomadic as a, as a species. It's at this time that we can talk about consciousness because we can talk about the rise of language. Our human brains are obviously growing. Um, they're growing by leaps and bounds as you look at the cranial sizes in the evolutionary scheme of things. And uh, we develop the corpus callosum. That allows our two hemispheres to communicate with each other. Um, but we also develop language. And Girard traces uh, human language back to uh, these uh, human ritual uh, sacrifices early on where humans were the where where we first uh created uh the process of symbolization by first demonizing 
the victim. And then when the benefits of peace and harmony and things like that came, why we then valorized or divinized the victim. And so the victim becomes the first polyvalent symbol, the first thing about which two very different things can be said. And that is what differentiates us from the primates. We can symbolize or create metaphors, whereas the primates cannot do that. And so in my medic theory, you know, what we have here is kind of a full-orbed understanding of the relationship between the uh, paleo um, uh, neurophysiological stuff, discussing the origin of language and symbolization, and then, of course, uh, its relationship to violence. The interesting thing to me, then, about the question that the film raises is this. When does Eva develop what we would call human consciousness? Is it in the room or is it only after she has taken the knife out of Nathan's back and stabbed him and delivered the fatal blow? You know, the the really basic answer is she was made with it, but that's not necessarily true because consciousness also gives a any being the ability to develop and change, right? Well, remember so, that... Yeah, remember go ahead. That, when Turing reframed the question, the question that he reframed was... Uh, and I got this, I stole this out of the Wikipedia article on the Turing test, but it's very helpful to me when I was thinking about this, is that the question is no longer, can machines think? The question is, how good are machines at the imitation game that is getting us to, to think that they think. Right. And that's really what the Turing test is. And it's about the imitation game. So there's your mimesis right there. The machine is already developed with the express intention to imitate the human. And that was that was talked about quite a few times in the film that kind of that question, is she simply imitating right. or is it real? Right. And so when does it become real for her is the question I'm asking. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found it interesting that you have um, her deception, obviously, when she comes to, out of the hallway. But why does she ask Kyoko? Why does she, why does she ask Kyoko to stab Nathan first? And then when she comes along and stabs him second, are we to think in terms of the Bacchanalia here? You know, the, the slaughter of Bacchus or Dionysius? Explain that. Well, you know, that's where the the, the women in Greek uh, legend or, or story, narrative tale, whatever, went into the grove and they were doing their dance and they were spied on by, uh, by Dionysius. And uh, so they took him and uh, slaughtered him into a million pieces. I mean, they just... They just wiped him out. I mean, I, I just thought about this in terms of, you know, you have the one woman stabbing, the second woman stabbing. Are we to think now, again, is this a is this a founding murder myth? That's the big question that 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 also raises right there. Right. You know, you know do do Nathan and Caleb function as the two goats on the day of the atonement? The one is slaughtered. The other is sent away into the room, locked into the room. Hmm. You know, I don't know. I don't know. But these are the things that pop into my head. Yeah. Yeah. With that murder there, too, it never tells us exactly what Ava said to Kyoko. Yes. 
No, um, it doesn't. And so I, I think that's interesting because what we're realizing at that point throughout that part of the movie is that Ava has been manipulating everyone through the whole movie. Yes. And so is it another manipulation for her or does she tell her the truth? You know, I I had all those questions at that point. Does she does she tell her? Does she just tell her what to do, or does she does she tell her something to manipulate how she feels about Nathan? Yeah, I, I don't see her as, as giving a command or issuing a command. Yeah, I don't see Kyoko obeying a command like that. But maybe there's something about who she is, and who Nathan perceives her to be and how those are not the same two things. I don't know. Good question. Uh, Something that I thought was interesting, and and I don't quite know what it means. We find out that that Nathan has been building a series of of robots. Yes. um, And Ava is, right now, the best that he's come up with. And so we find out that all of these different past versions had flaws and they had... He's, he's built them a little better along the way. We see um, some of the video of some of the past versions very, very briefly. And we can tell just from the video some of the problems with them. And when we get to Ava, the, the difference seems to be her ability to manipulate the others. To manipulate her environment, right. And it, it maybe seems to have something to do with sexuality as well. You know, there was the video of one of the robots who's just saying, let me out, let me out, let me out, let me out. And that was her way of trying to escape. But when it comes to Ava, she doesn't just try to use that brute force kind of escape. It's subtle. Um, She's developed in such a way that she understands something that the others didn't understand. Why did you make Ava? That's not a question. Wouldn't you, if you could? Maybe. I don't know. I'm asking why you did it. Look, the arrival of strong artificial intelligence has been inevitable for decades. The variable was when, not if, so... I don't see Ava as a decision, just an evolution. I think it's the next model that's going to be the real breakthrough. The singularity. Next model. After Ava. I didn't know there was going to be a model after Ava. Yeah, why, you thought she was a one-off? No, I knew there must have been prototypes, so I... I knew she wasn't the first, but I thought maybe the last. Well, Ava doesn't exist in isolation any more than you and me. She's part of a continuum, so version 9.6 and so on, and each time they get a little bit better. When you make a new model, what do you do with the old one? Well, I uh, download the mind, unpack the data, add in the new routines I've been writing, and to do that, you end up partially formatting so the memories go. But the body survives, and Ava's body's a good one. You feel bad for Ava? (sighs) 
feel bad for yourself, man. One day the AIs are going to look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons in the plains of Africa. An upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. There you go again, Mr. Quotable. There you go again. It's not my quote. It's what Oppenheimer said after he made the, the atomic, atomic bomb. bomb. Yeah, I know what it is. Dude. Well, obviously, t it's about time. She, she. Well, I think only at one point does she ask the question, "What will happen to me?" Right. Whereas I got the impression from the others that they had become aware they were in an ennui existence. Mm -hmm. it, it was going, they were driving circles in a dead end street, you know, they were going nowhere. Yeah. Whereas I, I think Eva is going to find a way out. She's going to find an exodus hmm. as it were. And her way out is, is the human way out through blood sacrifice. Yeah. Why is Nathan so utterly alone in the world as a genius? He's differentiated. He's above his peers. There's no one like him. No one can imitate him, and thus no one can validate him. Yeah. So if he can create artificial intelligence, which he calls the greatest scientific breakthrough in the history of humanity, he's creating a double of himself. Because if that test is passed, you are dead center of the greatest scientific event in the history of man. If you've created a conscious machine, it's not the history of man. That's the history of gods. I think yeah. it's interesting, too, that the the one creation that he has preserved, Kyoko, is really inferior to the others. Um and it's unclear if she was an earlier model that he just held on to or if he made her intentionally so but she doesn't she doesn't understand language the same she, and basically she's just there to be a servant and to kind of facilitate what he wants um but it's interesting that that's the thing that he kind of wants day to day and he doesn't necessarily want he doesn't seem to want a companion that's his equal unless you're, that's really what right. he's searching for well it's you see he's put himself in a double bind he wants a companion that's his equal but he doesn't want anyone to be his equal hmm. so he's put himself in a, at the classic double bind hmm, yeah when we get to the very end we see her take off. We see her leave the, the compound and everything and head into the world. And I, I was reading some things about the ending. There seems to be a lot of kind of question and discontent about the ending. And some people say it went on just a little bit too long. We should have just ended with, with Caleb there being trapped. But we see Ava go off into the world. Um, and it, it did feel different there, I think, because we've had most of the movie from Caleb's perspective, but then there's a switch there to, 
to Ava's perspective. You think there was anything significant there and just her, you know, I, I think the idea was she's going to that busy intersection that she talked about so that she can see humanity. Well, there is, there is that, but think of it also this way. When uh, Romulus and Remus are um, uh, in a rivalry over the founding of the city of Rome and uh, Remus dies in the conflict, um, you have the founding of the city of Rome. You have the same thing in the Enuma Elish. After Tiamat is finally killed, the creation can be made, and thus Babylon can be founded. In the Bible, Cain kills Abel, and the text reads, and then he went out and built a city. It should have read he went out and built a yurt. It was only him and mom and dad. <laughs> he went out and built a city. There's that connection in all of this mythology between founding murders and civilization. Well, I think you have the same thing here. You go right from founding murder to, to civilization. Yeah, yeah. For me, the ending makes sense. Yeah. It completes the myth. Do you see this as just sort of uh, an example of this story that's being repeated over and over? Or do you think we're intended to learn anything? Well, you, you know, in a sense, it's um, it's the same story as Star Wars. It's the battle between good and evil. Only, in this case, the question of what constitutes good and what constitutes evil is left wide open for the viewer to discern. I mean, really, up until the final escape where she escapes from her room, up till up until that point, you could say that you hope she gets away. You hope that they, you know, they're able to get away. Yeah. You, you hope yeah. that. She's conned us as a viewing audience as well. Mm-hmm. You know, we bought right into it, just like Caleb did. So where are, where, where are we as a viewing audience left? Well, we're not the creators of this, but we're left in the room, as it were. Now, well, we're the, we're the victims of Ava. To some degree, I, I kind of feel like at the end as well, maybe there's a bit of a, a choice on the viewer's part. Do you choose to side with Ava? Are you rooting for her to escape? Cause I, I feel like I still, I still do want her to be free, even though she's kind of the bad guy at the end. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like there's a bit of a, you're a bit torn at the end. Are you on Caleb's side or, or are you on Ava's side? And, um, well, that's, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I feel like you don't, you don't really come out at the end with a clean idea, kind of like you said, of who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Yeah. And then in that sense, the director did a very, very good job of forcing the viewer to really think through the film. Yeah, and that and that's what I get think is part of what makes it such an excellent film. The acting, by the way, I thought was very very good. Yeah, to to be able to support two hours of of movie with four actors, yeah, is is pretty exceptional. Fascinating film, though, wonderfully done. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think we've we've picked it apart pretty good. Do you have any uh, any burning thoughts before we before we're done? No, I I uh, look forward to movies like this. So you know, when they come out, why well, it'd be fun to analyze more. Yeah, I, I think this is one that uh, it, it challenges us. So so often we have, uh, I think most of our year, most of the year, our movies are just entertainment, and they're there to help us feel good for a while, feel excited. But um, it's interesting yeah. when something can stretch us and 
and actually the la- the last movie we discussed with I discussed with someone else was the uh the last temptation of Christ. Uh-huh. A- and the the other person Chris who I was talking with he said he thought that movies should raise more questions than just give us answers. And uh thought that was that was pretty interesting and yes we, yes we should be looking for those films that raise questions in us not just that give us answers especially as a as a Christian audience that we aren't just looking for something that lays out easy answers for us. Absolutely. Yeah. And that that's what makes a movie like Ex Machina so good. Well, thanks for having me on, Jace. Well, thank you, Michael. Appreciate you appreciate you ch- taking a few minutes to chat. And um, if anybody is interested in hearing more of your thoughts, where can they look? They can go to uh, www.preachingpeace.org. Uh, they can friend me on Facebook. Uh, but Preaching Peace has videos and podcasts and lectionary commentary and articles and all sorts of resources, all free. Fantastic. Thanks for listening today. Please check out the other Media Scorch Network podcasts at mediascorchpodcasts.com. You'll find our other Film Matters episodes where we discuss and examine specific films, as well as the Where Are We Going show, where we look at specific issues such as nonviolence, racism, changing culture, biblical interpretation. You should enjoy them all at mediascorchpodcasts.com. I'm Jason Weedle. Thanks for listening. See you next time.